Want to earn 20 to 25 hours of literacy professional development? Check out a new online course led by host Susan Lambert, Foundations to the Science of Reading. Join fellow educators in this self-paced course designed to equip you with the knowledge and skills to bring evidence-based literacy practices into your classroom. Explore eight modules that will strengthen your understanding of the science of reading and earn a course completion certificate. Find out more information, access a preview, and register at amplify.com slash SORcourse. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Doris Baker, Associate Professor in the Department of Special Education and the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at the University of Texas, Austin. Her research includes developing and evaluating instructional tools and assessments in English and in Spanish to improve and monitor the academic performance of English learners in reading, science, and social studies. As we continue to address topics in biliteracy, I'm confident you'll find this episode useful. Dr. Doris Baker, we are so excited to have you on today's episode. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, um, as I just explained to you, our listeners love to hear a little bit about your journey. How did you become interested in literacy and biliteracy? We love to hear that. Yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. I'll be glad to, to share. So um, I was born in Brazil and then I lived, uh, I moved to Colombia when I was three years old and then later to Mexico. Uh, and I finished my bachelor's degree in Mexico uh, City at um, the Universidad Iberoamericana in psychology. So I basically, I grew up speaking three languages, Spanish, Portuguese, and German. I always went to a German immersion school. And then I learned uh, English when I was in fourth grade. So, so for me, being bilingual and multilingual was just something that we all did. And everybody in my family spoke all the languages. So um, it, I never found it as strange or different until <laughs> you start kind of getting older and realizing, you know, the many opportunities that you can have with, um, by being bi- multilingual. Mm, that's interesting. And I was just reading something. I can't remember what it was, but here in the United States, it actually is quite uncommon or we don't think about it as the normal course in progression to to know multiple languages. So I think we're outliers in, in the entire world in that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bit surprising to me when uh, when I found out that uh, that was the case. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, so- and then your interest in just sort of like learning about literacy or learning about like, did you always know you wanted to do that? Was there a point in time when you're like, oh, this would be interesting to study? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so as I say, I studied psychology at the University uh, Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And then um, I met my husband and uh, we got married. And then we went to, uh, I studied, we came to the States and I studied a master's in Latin American studies because mm-hmm. I, for, to a certain extent, I consider myself a Latin American Sure. Given that, you know, I was born in Brazil, lived in Mexico and Colombia, have traveled um, extensively around Costa Rica and other countries that uh, that it it, um, it really kind of called my attention to be part of this kind of long, uh, bigger world. And and then from there, we moved to Oregon, where I taught Spanish for 14 years at the University of Oregon. So um, I had an internship where uh, my students would go into schools and um, kind of um, 
medical um, offices to kind of help people who had uh, Latino uh, students or, or families or patients who uh, were... Um, who who didn't speak uh, English and who only mm-hmm. spoke Spanish. And so my students would come back and tell me stories about, you know, sometimes the students, because the teacher didn't know the language, would sit in the back of the class and not really be interested and focused because they didn't understand the, the teacher and the teacher didn't understand them. So mm-hmm. um, it really made me aware of uh, the a large, um, um, the, the lack of not having enough teachers who are bilingual and who could help students, but also, uh, the attitude no, of the students kind of feeling always awkward and frustrated because they could not uh, understand what the teacher was saying. And and that was what sparked my interest in continuing uh, uh, my studies and uh, becoming a researcher in bilingual education. So uh, mm, that's, that's interesting. And, you know, um, as we're talking about this and thinking about being bilingual or biliterate and learning two languages, we like we know like biliteracy is such an advantage um, in many many ways, and uh, and but developing proficiency in one language isn't the same thing as developing proficiency in two languages. So can you talk a little bit about you know how biliteracy is different or like becoming biliterate is different from learning just like two languages individually? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I think that uh, exactly one of the things that we are um, understanding better more and more now with neuroscience studies is that, um, you know, when a bilingual person always brings the two languages up whenever we're talking. And the thing is that we learn to suppress one language over the other, depending on who we are talking to. And so it's not necessarily, just like you're saying, it's not necessarily learning one language and I learned the other language, but those two languages are also interacting. And, uh, and so we can learn as much about our own native language by sometimes learning a second language, as well as, of course, supporting second language learning by our native language. Hmm. Um, but I also think that um, language learning goes beyond just, you know, the words and the language, but it really kind of fosters uh, um, cultural understanding and, uh, and kind of a, a way of seeing the world that is a little bit perhaps broader than uh, if you only know one language. And uh, and then the, the studies from neuroscience also indicate that, you know, usually bilinguals have a bit of more of a flexibility, of flexibility in my, uh, of mind. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes they are even, uh, it's much easier for them to multitask because we are, you know, constantly kind of like working on this different um, languages and dimensions, no? And so uh, it seems to be like an advantage in, in this world where we're all trying to do multiple things at the same time. Um, it can also be a challenge, of course, no? Because one of the things that happens is that then uh, we tend to code switch quite a bit. And mm-hmm. sometimes code switching is good if you are with others who also code switch and speak the languages, no, then there is no problem in terms of understanding. But if you are in a surrounded by people who only speak one language and, and sometimes you code switch just naturally, I mean, you, you sometimes don't even realize you're code switching, then it became, can become a problem because, um, the people that you're talking to um, are not really understanding what you're saying, you know. So, so it has its advantages, but it also has some uh, disadvantages, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, that we have to consider when we're bilingual. It's not a problem, but it is something that we have to be aware of. Oh, that's, that's a really good reminder of the interconnectedness between the social aspect and, and just the, you know, the language itself. So language is used for very social purposes, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think it builds also cultural awareness. No, so I think mm-hmm. we really, uh, you know, try to understand different beliefs and different ways, traditions, different ways of seeing the world that uh, sometimes you don't get with uh, uh, just kind of being immersed in one culture, or one language only. Hmm. So going back to your example of talking about how your students would go in and help um, students that couldn't speak the language, students whose home language differs from the language of instruction, schooling can be really challenging depending on the context in, in terms of what that schooling looks like. And I know there are so many different ways to organize that instruction. Schools do that differently. Um, what are, what are your thoughts about, you know, how we can help organize schooling to help support the development of biliteracy? Yeah, yes, yeah. So, yeah, it made me think um, a little bit about the multi-tier systems of support, you know, but, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, really being aware that uh, second language learners, it's not that they have a disability or uh, or all of them have a language um problem, but it's more uh, being aware that they have certain needs, no? like, for example, vocabulary. So, uh, you know, building and every activities that teachers can do, vocabulary um, um, activities and exercises that can help students understand what they are hearing is very helpful. And sometimes it's not just a vocabulary, let's say, like the tier three vocabulary, where it's more let's say content specific or uh, even tier two, but it could potentially even be tier one words, no Mm -hmm. simple words. Like for example, each, no, if a student uh, is in kindergarten and doesn't understand the word each um, within the context of a word problem of mathematics word problem, they might have a very hard time understanding and solving the problem. And it's not an issue of um, not understanding the math, but it's a problem with not understanding the the language. And so just uh, being very aware of that is important and providing, of course, professional development to teachers. So they are aware of some of those expressions and uh, um, concepts and and um, and words that students might have a difficult time um, understanding and therefore cannot understand completely what uh, a word problem says or what uh, a science experiment is uh, they are doing. Uh, mm, yeah. It's kind of the results of a science experiment. Yeah. And is that um, where uh, we can actually actually leverage a home language? So if they have that vocabulary in their home language, we can try to help make connections with them then to further acquire that language of instruction or English, if that's what it is. Yeah. Yes, yes, I think so. I think it's important. And if if the teacher, for example, is bilingual too and can translate it, it's, it's good. My only concern, though, and I have seen it many times, is that sometimes, um, you know, tier, let's say tier two words, the academic words, mm-hmm. a simple translation is not enough because students might likely not also know the word in their native language. So, so we have to be careful with just translating and uh, uh, not ensuring that students actually are understanding the concepts. Uh, no, for example, the concept of government, you no, know, we can easily translate that into Spanish gobierno, but that doesn't mean that they really understand yeah. what government is and what it does and for what purpose it exists. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And then how do we think about, so I'm thinking about, uh, maybe a, a student, their Spanish is their home language, and they're coming into school. The language of schooling is primarily English. Um, but at what point do we need to think about if is something in the their Spanish language development actually impacting their English language development? And that kind of feels all a little complex to me. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it it is complex, but I, but I think it is um, something that is not it's not impossible to understand. Let's say, <laughs> and That's so for good. example, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so for example, we know that um, you know, and, and there are many studies that show it that if we screen students with an assessment, with a formative assessment, to just get a sense of where they are, what they understand, even if it is in English, in the second language, we can get information from there uh, mm-hmm. about student, how students are doing. And in kindergarten, of course, it's a little bit harder because you know students are just adjusting and getting to school. Sure. So there are many, many other factors that might affect the results. But uh, after kindergarten, we, we know that a formative assessment in English is also as useful to assess those children and to determine what they need in terms of reading um, as monolingual students. Um, if we, of course, ideally, if we have also assessments in Spanish, then uh, we can de- definitely determine if students also are struggling with Spanish. No, And if they are struggling with Spanish, then it might be possible that they might have uh maybe a learning difficulty or reading difficulty that uh, was not captured by the English um, mm. assessment. But if we know if their uh, Spanish skills are strong enough, then we know that it's more a matter of transition. And so we can follow the student across the, the grades and you know throughout the year just to make sure that they are using their skills in Spanish and their knowledge in Spanish to build their English um, acquisition in their language, English comprehension. Uh, but I think that in the early grades, it's really important for us to recognize that for students, you, you know, you have to kind of like make the transition between one language, a native language, second language, overt and explicit. Like they not don't naturally will um, associate, uh, for example, a cognate in, in English with a word they know in Spanish, you know? So we need to kind of make this more... Um, more more explicit for them so that they can actually use what they know in Spanish to build their English. Hmm. And their we can do that at the sound level too, right? Like we can learn as they're learning to recognize sounds and, and map those sounds to print. We can leverage those, those, um, those commonalities between languages too, if we know them. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. For example, yeah, that's a really good uh, point. For example, phonemic awareness. Now we know that most of the consonants in Spanish and English are the same. Mm-hmm. Therefore, uh, you know, we don't need really need to teach it twice, let's say. We can uh, teach it once in one language, but then always kind of make that connection for the student, know that the same, for example, the sound in, in uh, for the, of the letter B is B, and, and that can be in Spanish or that can be in English, no? And uh, and so then, then we can leverage what they say. Uh, we also know that, for example, for um, skills such as phonological awareness, you sometimes don't necessarily need to know the meaning of the word. Of course, it's it's good and it's much better to know the meaning of a word than to not know it. But uh, but students can do phonological awareness activities in the absence of understanding the word they are hearing. And so that is also another opportunity for us to teach uh, students uh, phonological awareness, uh, even if they are second language learners. So we don't, in other words, we don't need to wait until they have acquired enough English to teach um, phonological awareness or the alphabetic principle. Hmm. So they can engage in, in whole class activities that are sort of leveraging the development of that phonological awareness. Yes, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And if the teacher, you know, can bring like some pictures or so to help with the vocabulary, you know, and, mm-hmm. and help kids understand the word and associate the sounds of, of the word they hear to a picture, uh, that is um, fantastic. I mean, that would be ideal, but uh, 
But even in the absence of that, students can do phonological awareness activities, even if they don't speak the language. Yeah. I recently attended the CDL Plane Talk Conference in New Orleans, and our team asked attendees to share their science of reading stories. Take a listen, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Isabel Malone from San Antonio, Texas. And the way that the science of reading has helped me is that I now have a better understanding of how children learn how to read. When I first started teaching 20 some years ago, I didn't have all this knowledge that I have now. And so now that I have gone through lots of training on the science of reading, um, as well as um, the reading academies in my school district, um, I now have better content knowledge and now I have better instructional strategy skill support that I can provide the teachers that I work with as an instructional leader. And so the science of reading has definitely changed the way I think about reading, the way I then have conversations with teachers um, and principals as well as um, creating PD for teachers in my district. So that is how the science of reading has helped me. So on this podcast, we talk a lot about um, the simple view of reading, right? So word rec- the importance of word recognition and the import- importance of language comprehension. And this probably sounds like a silly question, but I really want to explicitly ask this. When we're, when we're thinking about the development of uh, uh, languages, um, no matter what, whether we're, we're you know, reading in Spanish or reading in English, What's your what's your understanding of how that simple view of reading still applies to both languages when we're mm-hmm. talking about that development? Yeah, yeah, very good question. And uh, and I'm going to my experience is mostly with Spanish and yeah, English, but sure. uh, other other languages in other studies have also shown that the simple view, view of reading works even even in languages that are not alphabetic, such as Chinese. Hmm. So so we know that that there is a commonality among languages in terms of. Uh, what uh, skills are, are needed to understand um, yeah, understand what we read, no? Uh, so, yeah, so so the simple view of reading fits well uh, with uh, also in Spanish, and there are studies that have done that, in Spain particularly. Um, and, and, and the idea is that, uh, you know, both languages, Spanish and English, for example, use the alphabet, no? So, therefore, um, you know, what we need to le- really learn are the letter sound correspondence to be able to recognize those um, letter sounds and then blend them to in order to uh, read words, no? And that is um, in isolation or in context, no? Uh, so, the, in terms of decoding, we can learn you know, to read to read words in mm-hmm. any language, as long as we can um, provide students with the opportunity to learn the alphabetic principle and phonological awareness. No, now what becomes a little bit more tricky is, of course, the the vocabulary and the comprehension. Right. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and for a second language learner, is I mean, obviously, vocabulary is is key, but it's also background knowledge. You no, know? because one of the issues is that we know that a lot of second language learners maybe come from um, different contexts or have experienced different contexts, and therefore the they don't have the same. Experiences that, for example, a monolingual um, English-only student might have, and building that background knowledge is really important for them to really understand the context in which a story takes place, or um, or in which, let's say, an experiment um, is is being conducted. No, and uh, and I think that's uh, uh, something that we're still not quite. Um, you know, we don't deliberately do it on, on a regular basis. Really understand. Okay, what is it that 
my students know about this experiment, for example, now, let's say volcanoes or, uh, you know, how volcanoes erupt or about the water cycle that they have never experienced because they have lived in a, in a place where maybe, you know, it was a desert or there was not that instruction taking place. You no, know, and they have to learn it from, um, from the beginning. Hmm. So they just... What do you, and how can teachers help develop that? So, I mean, like word recognition is one thing and getting kids to decode words, but the understanding part of that, the vocabulary and the, and the background knowledge, what's the best way to help engage our, our second language learners or biliterate kids in, in developing that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that nowadays, you know, we have the advantage of technology and of videos and oh, beautiful yeah. pictures and the internet, you know, like kind of to really bring that to, uh, to students in, in an engaging and, you know, interesting way that will attract them. And so trying to use those resources as much as we can is really important. Uh, and as well as also, you know, asking students and understanding where they're coming from and where, you know, like what their experiences are. And also really get a little bit of the context of where um, students are growing up or their experiences before coming to school so that we can center the activities on also um, on what they know. And then from there, build to something new, you know, if, uh, if that is the case, or really kind of like enrich their knowledge, you know, by um, acknowledging what their experiences are, you know. Mm-hmm. And then that that oral language development must be really, really important, particularly for kids <clears throat> that are learning new languages. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's fundamental. And having opportunities for kids to uh, to talk is really, really important. And particularly talking about content, not like uh, really engaging in in uh, in conversations that even if they are might not be grammatically correct or they might not be um you know, long in the beginning while students are acquiring language, but but really trying to foster their communication and their uh, expressions is um, is fundamental. You no, know? um, we shouldn't shy away from even sophisticated and deep conversations. We just have to make sure that we provide them with uh, you know enough vocabulary, with sentence stems, with uh, with ways of expressing themselves that uh, is at their let's say at their language development stage so that they can actually also participate in uh, in all the activities hmm. but but the thing that we want to avoid is you know having them just watch and observe all the time and never talk so uh, we want to you know they hold them accountable really and challenge them to say to answer a question and maybe in the beginning it's just going to be yes or no or multiple choice or you know like one word sentences, but, uh, but as they develop it and they know that they have to participate, then, uh, you know, we can become more and more sophisticated on how they should, um, express themselves and, um, and, you know, provide explanations or descriptions or whatever it is, uh, that the teacher's working on. Yeah. Hmm. And this, this has me thinking now, you mentioned before, sort of that multi-tiered systems of support that we can help these students with, um, talk a little bit about the importance of them being involved in that core instruction um, along with their peers. And then how do we maybe scaffold and help support? I think you've mentioned a few things, but I, I guess I don't even know how I'm trying to ask this, but I'm assuming it's really important that they're in core instruction with their peers, right? 
<laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, many times I go to schools and then students are pulled out right when there is, um, you know, core reading instruction, for example. And then, of course, when the students come back, they don't know what happened because they missed 30 minutes of the class. And so going back to participate is impossible. And then, unfortunately, sometimes the the tier two instruction, the instruction they are receiving is not connected to what the oh, teacher yeah. is doing. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, it's not like they can use that now to participate more. No, So so I think that a key part is really any kind of uh, additional support the students are receiving, particularly ESL, um, English language development, English as a second language, that is connected to the topics and to the core instruction um, so that they can really, uh, students, I mean, in a way, are getting like a boost ideally pre-teaching what the content will be so that they can participate actually in the, um, in the, in the whole class instruction. Mm. We don't talk enough about pre the, the strategy of pre-teaching, um, particularly with, uh, with, with EL students. Um, why is that pre-teaching so powerful? I've seen it being used really powerfully by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it is because, you know, then you give the students the opportunity, first of all, to understand things at their level and to really kind of the teacher can work with them on the language, on the key vocabulary words, uh, the main ideas of the um, of the lesson. And then when kids get into the classroom, then the teacher is talking about something that they can recognize. You no, know? And that gets them very excited. I mean, um, you know, I think that Sometimes we feel like, oh, the, t- the student is receiving twice the lesson, but actually that extra practice really allows them to participate and uh, feel confident. You know? um, I had a study, just as an anecdote, but I had a study with uh, preschoolers where we would ask the parents to read aloud with their children uh, books that the teacher then was reading in uh, in the classroom. And it was amazing how you know, you could tell if parents had been reading with the kids because yeah. of how they participated <laughs> sure. in the classroom. <laughs> but in, in one of the cases, one of the students, you know, a, a four-year-old, um, was talk- the teacher was going to talk about a book that they had just read uh, at home. And she mispronounced the, um, the author's name and the kid kind of clarified and corrected, <laughs> <laughs> corrected her, which was really exciting to see because, I mean, it really made you realize how powerful that was. And he was participating and he knew the book he understood it he could say things and you know be much more alert and engaged in the whole group discussion than if he had not uh, read the book before and knew about what the the book was about yeah Hmm, that's interesting I'm going to take a little bit of a turn on that one too because you you mentioned um, parents so how can parents be supportive um, outside of the school or within the school? How can we draw parents into this process to really support kids in the development of, of new languages? Yeah. So so I think, you know, in my experience, it's mostly been with uh, Latino parents. But mm-hmm. uh, what I've learned and what I found is that Latino parents are really always engaged and very interested in helping their children succeed. And I, I assume, of course, it's for every parent, but uh, but for them particularly, because they want their kids to be part of the society. They want them to participate, to be successful, to um, complete their education. Uh, and so... Um, so drawing from so but one of the issues that happens sometimes is that you know we asked teachers for example uh, parents to read with their children but we don't really 
you know, give them the books or tell them how to do it or what is the best way of engaging students, like I mean, their children in an interactive way mm-hmm. of reading that uh, that will support their learning, but also develop their language and, uh, you know, their kind of also relationship with uh, their parents or guardians. And mm-hmm. so I think that uh, providing that training to parents uh, on how to read, how long to read, what kind of books to read, um, how that uh, interaction should take should take place would really help parents um, become even more, much more engaged with their children if they have these opportunities. And then do we encourage parents to read in their home language in the, I mean, oh, yeah. I'm assuming, yeah, I was going to say, I'm assuming that this is in their home language. Yeah. Oh, very good question. Yes, exactly. That's what uh, I always tell parents. Yeah. Please read with your children uh, in your own language because that's the language that you feel the most comfortable with. And so it's going to become a very rich conversation while, but it, it does happen that sometimes, you know, parents want to speak to their children or read to the children in English because they want them to learn right. English. Mm-hmm. But uh, if they, if the parents are not themselves very fluent in English, what happens is that the conversations become a little bit stilted. And there is not a rich kind of vocabulary and uh, uh, exchange, no, than uh, if they would just kind of speak their native language and, uh, and you know, enrich that. And we know that all this language proficiency at the early stage can really help develop also reading uh, is a good strong predictor of reading abilities later on and reading mm-hmm. comprehension. So uh, it, it's, it's not going to be detrimental to the child if their parents speak to their children in their native language. Yeah. And isn't there also beyond just not detrimental that it's actually helpful to kids to develop like the use of language to, to help them in the transition? Yes, for sure. Yes, exactly that. And also, you know, really maintains the culture. I mean, we see language also as part of culture and traditions and, uh, um, and, and beliefs and values, then it also kind of maintains, you know, those values that uh, sometimes are so important for, the families to continue and to um, to feel proud of their past and their, you know, their history and their background and their traditions. And so, uh, and then also, of course, it helps them communicate with other members of their family, you know, like grandparents or um, maybe cousins or aunts and uncles that uh, might live far away. And that, uh, that also helps. You know, mm-hmm. knowing the language helps maintain those relationships too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to go back a little bit to this idea of assessments, right? Because mm-hmm. we know in just in the development of learning to read in English, um, assessments are important to understand where kids are in their progress and making sure that we're using them appropriately. Um, I'm assuming when we're developing with second language learners, these assessments are again, are going to be really important. How can they, how can teachers best use that assessment information when we're talking about the development of another language? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, if, if the school uh, doesn't have resources or doesn't have enough, uh, let's say bilingual teachers or, and can only provide instruction in English, um, what we have found is that, um, you know, formative assessments in English can equally uh, identify as well as, uh, you know, even native language assessments, which are the students who might be struggling. So for a school that doesn't have any native language support, uh, following and doing and screening students is really important, particularly in the early stages. And of course, in kindergarten, as we're talking about, you know, like it might not be um, like, like there may be other factors that affect what students are learning and understanding. But once students have been adjusted to school, 
those uh, screeners and uh, progress monitoring assessments work as well um, as for monolingual children. Now, if the school has the capacity to have bilingual teachers and bilingual instruction, then definitely uh, we we should use um, uh, assessments that are bilingual, no, in Spanish and in English, and then um, be aware. Of it kind of realize what is the level of knowledge in one language and the other. Now, we know that if students have strong native language skills, then they are going to be uh, very likely transitioning into English instruction without a lot of um, additional support. If a student is struggling in their native language, then they are likely to have uh, to need more um, more support because their native language is not um, developed enough. Now, one of the issues that sometimes happens in, in schools is that, for example, the student is in second and third grade and their native language is not strong enough and their English language is not strong enough. And then it becomes a little bit of a, difficult, no? because if we want to just teach them in English, in, Span- in Spanish, let's say in their native language, then they're going to fall behind in, in English. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so the question is like, how long are we going to provide them with the native language instruction uh, when they when the goal and or when in middle school they are more likely to have only English instruction, no? and so there is when the teachers have to really make a decision and realize the world that the student is living in. Because sometimes we think that because a student has a Hispanic name or because they, um, you know, they the mom or the parents speak Spanish, then that's the only language they hear. And the reality is that uh, many times. Students also hear English at home and speak in English with their siblings. So the difference between Spanish and English is very kind of like blurry. And uh, so trying to keep their, their, their Spanish, but without developing their English might end up also delaying them in developing their English skills. No, So, so there are lots of variations, in other words, in terms of um, how to best support students. And we have to really... I mean, be aware of the context, again, where students are living and, and the language they are using and what the parents' preference is and which way they are going to go. I mean, what's the direction they are going to go and their level of uh, proficiency to determine uh, what would be the best way to assess them, whether it's in two languages or or in one, yeah. Hmm. And I would imagine that in your work, you've seen lots of different organization uh, organizational structures for how schools do that. Um, both with English, Spanish, or or any other language development. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. All kinds of, and, and we really don't. The reality is, we really don't know which configuration or which type of bilingual program is the best. We do know that uh, uh, progress monitoring and screening students and progress monitoring them in the language of instruction. So, if there is a bilingual program, then we should uh, assess them in both languages, yeah. really, to know how much progress they are making and how they are transitioning from one language to the other. And if it's a monolingual um, uh, monolingual program, or let's say a transition program where they're speaking only in, in Spanish in the beginning, they're learning to read in Spanish, then, yeah, the focus should be on Spanish formative assessments. And if they have they need support, it should be in Spanish. But once they're starting to transition into English or there is this this process of changing, then they should be also assessed in English to see if what, the skills they are learning in Spanish are transferring to to English, and uh, and if not, then kind of be prepared for that additional support uh, for students. Hmm, that makes so sense. that they can uh, 
Yeah. Suck seat. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, it's, it's hard work for teachers in the classroom though, when you're thinking about the, the variety of uh, linguistic abilities and language abilities for our students. Um, how have you seen teachers successfully navigate that? Obviously the use of assessment data, right? <laughs> yes, yes, that, that is important. And particularly early, what, what I have seen and, uh, you know, I teach uh, pre-service teachers as well as master uh, bilingual teachers who have, uh, who are doing their masters. And, and one of the things I found is sometimes they tell, they are teaching fourth and fifth grade and they tell me that they have students who cannot read and they have been in the system for four years, and mm. yet they cannot read. Uh, and one of the and, this, and the students have never been assessed, have never been screened to see if there is a problem or not. And so then is when, you know, you uh, you worry about it because uh, we do have screeners that are very reliable in the early grades, and so there is no reason for excluding uh, bilingual students from uh, from screening. Uh, from screening them and uh, progress monitoring them in the language of instruction so that we really know how much progress they're making. Because as you can imagine, I mean, trying to figure out what students' difficulties are and at what level in fourth grade is much more complicated and complex than if we were to um, support them, if we had support them in kindergarten or first grade. So um, trying to really uh, uh, identify students early is, uh, is very important to reduce reading difficulties later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just wonder, um, lots of really great information here. And as sort of, as we wrap up, I wonder if you have any advice or any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, based on my own personal experience, as well as from working in bilingual research, I really think that uh, we should embrace bilingualism and bilingual education much more than what we do. I think that nowadays we have the research and we know uh, what works and uh, and why being bilingual is important and mm -hmm. it's an asset that we should yeah. keep and <laughs> develop and evolve. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would like to definitely, um, you know, have people think about it, you know, like how can we bring uh, bilingualism more like kind of to all students, you know, where it's English only students as well as bilingual students. And how can we really build and um, from the, what they know? Uh, I think that bilingualism also helps us understand the world better and uh, uh, become more open to different ways of thinking and uh, behaving. And so I think that uh, there are so many advantages that we should not uh, shy away from it as being a big complicated problem, but more uh, embracing it and seeing how we can really bring it to more people. I love that. I love the shift in, um, we've, we've made a big shift in, the, in our conversation here in education about viewing second language learners as having a deficit versus asset based and, mm -hmm. and just the advantage that bilingualism brings um, and how developing that can be really, really important for the success of our students. Yes, I think so. Exactly. I think that uh, seeing it as an asset and seeing that there are ways to teach them and we know what works, we know how, um, teaching should, should be with students who struggle or students who don't understand. We, we know the focus that um, the, this instruction should, should be on. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, we have all the, all the pieces there. And of course, we have to do much more research to really fine tune what we know right now. But, uh, 
but it's not impossible and it's not an extra task and it's beneficial to to everybody yeah even English-only students. <laughs> sure. Well, Dr. Doris Baker, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we look forward to um, continuing the conversation. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and uh, good luck with everything else. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for joining and please join us for a free virtual symposium celebrating biliteracy realizing a better future for our Spanish speakers. It's all happening on May 19th, 2022. At this special event, you'll discover how to celebrate and honor the unique skills, strengths, and needs your multilingual learners bring to the classroom, as well as how to accelerate literacy development for your Spanish speakers. Register now at the link in the show notes.